Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I'm joined by, like, evil twins? Evil twins. Thing one and thing two. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're doing our first segment called Killing Families. And the evil twins are here because... They're family members. Yes. You might recognize our voices. Correct. We came here as a sibling set. Yes. Yes. As siblings, they do want to kill each other. (laughs) And I think even as adults, they occasionally want to. Correct. We actually have to work together in like real life outside of this amazing podcast. We do things real life together. All the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Which I'm sure adds to their delight. Makes us a little more evil. Well, I do love him. I just also hate him. Right. That's a sibling, right? Right. That's how it works. Yes. There is such thing as a love and hate relationship. And I think sometimes you love him, sometimes you hate him. And I think it's vice versa. Right. Correct. Uh, in fact, I'm, and I'm just going to, behind the curtains, we're not going to mention names like Jason as to how long it took us to actually get together <laughs> to do this recording. Because someone couldn't get their shit together. But thing one, which I'm dubbed thing one now, is, you know, he, he decides to disappear sometimes. I would just like to state that before I came to recording, I know that I should be early. So I was ready to be here five minutes early and everyone else is late. So just note that thing two was on time for once in her life and no one else was on time today. It this, was great. This isn't civil rivalry playing out on uh, podcasts or right. anything like that. Pointing out each other's faults. I think thing two is the responsible one. Maybe she's the good twin. (laughs) Maybe I'm the bad twin. We'll see how today goes. It took three decades, but here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for our very first Killing Families segment episode, I want to paint a picture. It is August 20th, 1989. It is a Sunday night. Around 10 p.m., This married couple, this long-lasting married couple, settled down in their rented home at 722 North Elm Drive in Beverly Hills, California. And it's rented because this family is actually having renovations done in their own home on Mulholland Drive. And this home, which is a two-story Mediterranean-style house, sits on a half acre of land, just over 9,000 square feet. This home houses this married couple and their two children, one who is off to Princeton. And as they're settling down with their bowl of ice cream, they're getting ready to watch a Sunday night movie. When all of a sudden, the doors to the study burst open, Gunshots from two 12-gauge shotguns ring out. 
and this couple gets murdered unexpectedly. And and as part of this scenario, those who heard the gunshots fall into two categories. They thought either they were teens playing with fireworks or those who heard the sh- gunshots in Beverly Hills simply chose to ignore them because this type of crime simply did not happen in Beverly Hills, California. And everything I just read will soon come to light is a lie. So tonight we're going to delve into the dark corners of the secrets of the Mendez family. Imagine if those walls could talk. I mean, just the the... The horror. And the other thing is, is how rich do you have to be to really just feel comfortable, like, on a daily? Like, I don't imagine murder's going to happen here because why were that wealthy? Like, Correct. that's insane. Correct. <laughs> that's like a safety I don't feel, but, you know, I'm not rich. So, there we go. So, to kind of even go further into the crime scene, the two 12-gauge shotguns were obtained by use of fake identification. They were purchased at a Big Five store in San Diego, California. And when the police arrive, they find the loving, upset, despondent children sitting out on the porch, having discovered their deceased parents. And to use the words of one of the detectives who entered of the house being rented by Jose and Kitty Mendez. Jose's brains were on the ceiling. His brains were on the wall as well as the windows. And Kitty herself was shot so many times she was unrecognizable. So it's safe to say there's like very little part of this room that is not covered in one of these family members. Like, I mean, I guess that's what happens when the murder weapon is a shotgun. Correct. Or two. And it will come to light later that the perpetrators reloaded and continued. Reloaded by walking out of the house, going into their car, obtaining more ammo, reloading, and coming back into the house and shooting a second time. And the perpetrators, with their 12-gauge shotguns, deliberately shot both Jose and Kitty's kneecaps to make it look as if this was a mafia hit. They said the dad looked decapitated almost, and mom was shot so many times that she was unrecognizable. Correct, correct. But they also said that they burglarized the house to try to make it look like it was some type of... Like that they were surprised and that someone had been in the house looking for something or to try to cover their tracks. Right? Gangland style. Okay. Okay. But I need to know, like, why would someone do this to this family? So I have some of those facts because, you know, I, I got to do the fun part of this one. I got a little bit of court. But, you know, I'm going to be interested to see what, you know, Thing 2 has on, like, what does this family really look like prior to this event? Because, you know, so, yeah, <laughs> if so I'm the neighbors, I'd be Samantha, like, what? <laughs> give us some, some deets on these people. Well, to take it back to where it all started, for many, the Menendez family was the epitome of the American dream. Jose was born in Cuba and immigrated to the United States after the Cuban Revolution in the 1950s. 
After coming to America, he lived in very poor and meager means. He lived in his cousin's attic, and he washed dishes. Uh, while he was doing that, he actually earned a college scholarship for swimming. So being an athlete was a big part of his life. It was very important, and he saw how that type of stuff opened doors for him. He went on, and he found his wife, Kitty, who was a beauty queen. He wooed her. They got married, and they had two boys. Together, these two built their empire. Jose spent the early 80s as a successful entertainment executive at RCA Records, signing bands like Duran Duran and the Rhythmics. The Arithmetics. The Arithmetics. Here comes the rain again. I didn't know who they were, but I'm like, I know Duran Duran. Whip it good, dude. Whatever. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Rolling it back. (laughs) So soon after that, they moved to Los Angeles so that Jose could pursue a career in the movie industry. They bought a beautiful house on one of the most exclusive blocks in Beverly Hills. Wait, before we jump on to the boys. Okay. So I've heard different things about dad, but the number one thing that you hear about dad is the reason why he is wealthy now is because he is ruthless. Like he has taken over those industries and forced his competitors out. So I think it's really important to say like he's self-made man, but he is also a ruthless MF. Like it's insane. Well, one of the things I did read about him was he basically bullied everybody, which this is a contributing factor to what leads to August 20th, 1989. I think that there is another point to be made, though. In America, everybody knows to have that American dream. Our family coming over from Italy in the early 1900s, they knew that when you came here, you had to work hard. You have to bust your ass and you have to build yourself. And so he because he had such a forceful personality and he was willing to do whatever it took, he was successful. It's unfortunate that he then pushed that onto his children. But we'll talk more about that later. So their children, Lyle, born in 1968, and Eric, born in 1970, seemed to have it all. The brothers were the picture of wealthy all-American kids. They grew up in the wealthy suburb of New Jersey. Lyle was a star tennis player and seemed destined to follow in his father's footsteps into a career in business. Eric, however, turned out to be an even better tennis player and was nationally ranked in his age group. The boys had no choice but to be successful as their hard-driving father worked his children to the bone, obsessed with them being the best. While Lyle openly worshipped his father, it seemed that Jose's tactics only made Eric feel as though he was never good enough and actually gave him extremely low self-esteem. After moving to California, the brothers ran into some trouble. Eric began running with the wrong crowd and got into trouble for a string of burglaries. Lyle enrolled into Princeton but was suspended for a year for plagiarism. Enraged by his son's behavior, their father is said to have amended his will so that his sons would receive less. It is even said that he was considering removing them from his will completely, but he never got the chance. So they've gone from being these picture-perfect boys at this point, living this perfect life, to starting to dip into some delinquency. And would you say that's because they've, because you did the research on the the family, would you say that's because they were kind of spoiled? Like, do you get a spoiled brat kind of vibe, or what do you get? I am not answering for you, but I'm answering for myself. Uh, Yes, that was my initial take. In fact, I read that both boys, one started and the other one joined, and they got to the point where they would find houses that were empty because the person was on vacation or whatever. So this is in the burglary. Right, and actually rent U-Hauls to empty out the houses. I mean, this is how entrenched they were getting in terms of the crimes that they were committing. And then it was like, I read later how daddy went around with his 
checkbook, literally went to each house, said, how much do you and want? Them off. Let me write this off. And, you know, then, then you read how Lyle was suspended from Princeton for a year for committing plagiarism. I mean, there is definitely an, an a sense of my daddy will fix this for me Entitlement. and I can do anything I want. Yeah, I do. I do think there's a certain level of that. I do think that you also see this a lot with kids that are handed everything when they don't feel like they have to be responsible for anything. They're going to go do something like this. Right. So we had in the Beverly Hills area, there was that string of burglaries that also was done. It was the bling ring or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They where they were show sneaking. about that. Well, mind you, all of those kids were from wealthy families yeah. that happened to know these people and they knew when they were around, same type of thing, knew when they were around, knew when they were gone, knew how to get into their houses and they went in and stole ton of, tons of jewelry. And, and those were like second houses and stuff too that they just knew were empty and, and stuff were easy. But like you said, they had like intimate knowledge there. They knew, right. So yeah. they, they knew who these people were. They knew what kind of stuff they had and it was easy for them to say that it was just financially motivated and it probably wasn't these kids will then come to find out they're rich kids you know like everyone just thought they were breaking into stars houses and stealing stuff well it was actually people that were in that inner circle yeah that's and that's super interesting perspective because you know as you're starting to we're unfolding this more and more and more it's starting to sound more professional you know, he they backed up a U-Haul and they're correct and I, in the seem, driveway. It's yes. seeming like they're really becoming more brash. fascinated, maybe with this criminal lifestyle. I think brash is better. Professional seems wrong. I think it's not. I think anybody could do it to that level if they have the means. So, like, if you're yeah. just a poor person breaking into a house, you ain't buying a U-Haul. How the fuck are you yeah, gonna get that? Yeah, shoot, I don't got money yeah, you for a U-Haul right now. Leroy's. <laughs> right, <laughs> van. Hey, Vinny, I need your van. That's how Italians do it. Bring me so, your garbage truck. I need so to steal this stuff. We're letting it out. So the evil twins over here are definitely Italian. So yeah, that's how so we would handle so it. So we can clarify that right now. <laughs> hey, Vinny. Hey, I mean they're from Jersey, okay? They probably know all about it. Just I mean, saying. and that and that's the whole thing too. So it, it's interesting to think that. That, and I heard a little bit about the fact that, you know, Eric was willing to kind of jump on tables and at demand to be served. Or yes, if, if someone wouldn't sell him something, he would like kick everything down in the store and be like, I'm the one you want to sell things to because I have money in my pocket. They had a very East Coast, upper echelon type of personality. Whereas yeah. like West Coast, I wouldn't say we're understated, but calmer like in Jersey, you want to flaunt that you Guido, you live in your best life. My thinking is, to some degree, that kind of behavior he sees from daddy. Oh, 100%. So it's not necessarily just that he has money. He has money, and then he has this bullying example of behavior. Well, those are things that are valued in their family, it sounds like, especially because of dad's climb to the top. and their Right, that's how they the were able to get the things that they had. 100%. I saw dad do this. This is acceptable by everybody else. Yeah. Here's how we roll. And so I heard two things, too. So I heard there was a testimony from um, some of the family members that were saying, specifically, dad was only mad at them because they got caught and that there's an element where dad was like okay you guys are weak because everybody steps on somebody to get somebody everybody gets rid of their enemies but you guys got caught and that's why you guys are idiots and that's an interesting perspective and the other thing to keep in mind is they went to calabasas 
So you know who else went to Calabasas was all of the Kardashians. Calabasas. Calabasas. And what's interesting about that is, you know, they look how kind of if you take them as an example and not to, you know, dig on the the Kardashians, but, you know, the level of entitlement of just the everyday person that lives in that area of the neighborhood. um, Well, not just. The Kardashians, all the kids on the hills. I went I with mean, all the a lot the of hills. OC kids to college, and they all had a lot of money, and they had private planes and helicopters and all this other garbage. They did. They had a sense of entitlement as well. When they rolled into college with me, I'm working two jobs trying to get through college. They're like, oh, I get $1,000 a month in allowance. We can go do all this crazy stuff. And I'm like, I can't go with you. I'm poor. <laughs> I have to go home and eat my top ramen. Uh, or tuna fish with garlic, salt, and mustard because legit I had nothing else in my cabinets. Yeah, but that's the lifestyle that they're used to. Right. They're accustomed to. So could you imagine what it would look like if that was to be taken away? Well, well and this leads us to what transpires after mommy and daddy are dead. Well, and I just want to go back for a quick second mm-hmm. because I do think there's a level of entitlement, but I also do think that we should point out that there's probably a level of them just plain rebelling. Because they are being pushed so much, and he is, to some level, breaking Eric to where he feels no self-esteem. He doesn't think he'll ever be good enough. Lyle's, like, wanting to go full board forward like his dad. But I do think there's a level of them just feeling broken and rebelling. To kind of piggyback that, I think when they got caught, part of the probation, the probation terms and conditions. Thank you. (laughs) They know these things. (laughs) Eric was told to go to therapy. And in the therapy, he discusses, I think, to some degree, the low self-esteem and, you know, suicidal thoughts. That, I think, comes later. Yeah. But either way, this is when he actually starts getting, to some degree, actual help. You know, I want to touch on that, too, because the prosecutor said, and I thought this was so interesting, but had this crime occurred in a low-income area it probably would have been prosecuted in a way where they would have ended up on, you know, one of our caseloads on on probation or in child welfare. But because this was done in such a white collar community, they she said she goes, the solutions that you see here is a trip to the psychologist. And, and not fine. Yes, and not so much any type of criminal record or anything of that nature. Right, so they're basically kind of handling it in a far more... Informal way. Well, Daddy has the money to have the attorneys Kid argue gloves. that they're first-time offenders, and right instead of the public defender, they're not going to get it overwhelmed with cases. Yeah. So again, this brings us to what happens with Eric and Lyle after their parents are died, and the insurance money, the family money, is now theirs. So, you, and just to lead into that again, so, you know, Vina kind of painted a picture. So we have two brothers that called, and I don't know if you've heard those 911 calls, but they're insane. And yes. they're literally, it's Lyle, like, screaming that his parents are dead, and you hear in the background Eric's just, like, inaudible screaming. And they said when they showed up, the police said one of them was riling on the grass in the front yard, like, inconsolable. And so then we're going to lead into, so they got paid out $400,000 in insurance money. That's what happens well, upon know, the death. So just so you understand, because nobody called 911, when the brothers were there and no cops showed up, they themselves had to call the cops. Correct, correct. Because, again, this kind of thing didn't happen in Beverly Hills. 
Well, and as much as this was an overkill of the parents, this was an overdramatization of the sons. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Correct. So, yes, I actually read accounts of 400,000, 500,000, 700,000. And, you know, I do find it kind of interesting that, I mean, we're literally talking four days later, they have cash in hand. Lyle spends about 64000 on a Porsche. He buys into a restaurant. He buys a Rolex. Eric buys a high-priced condo, a Jeep. He takes lavish vacations. He even hires a full-time tennis coach at the low, low price of $50,000. And I think it was Eric, but one of them even invests $4,000 into a rock concert that actually never happens. So they're literally rolling into the dough. And you add this to their previous behavior of misconduct with the thefts, the plagiarism, and now you have these post-death shopping sprees. And later it comes to light, because he shared this with everybody, Eric Mendez kind of fancied himself to be a writer. And he wrote a script of two brothers killing their parents for the insurance money. And the the information he provides is almost exactly how things transpired on August 20th, 1989. If that doesn't give you chills, I don't know what does. And the worst thing is, is so who gives us that piece of information? They're like best friend, like one of their best friend who literally read the script and was like, that was crazy. I can't believe that. And then when it transpired, they were talking about watching everything on the news and being like, that's exactly how it went down. Because once they first put out the first copy of the script, I guess they fine tuned it, fine tuned it, fine tuned it. And in hindsight, when they go back and look at it, it is eerily similar to the actual events. So it's. Well, I'm just getting strong OJ vibes. I mean, yeah. it is like, I didn't do it, but if I did, this, this is, is how, how I would have do done it. it. Except uh, he does it before right. the guns, gun, the bullets start flying. I think we call that premeditation. Uh, fantasizing. <laughs> second, I mean, I don't know. Second degree, first degree murder? It, <laughs> premeditation's first, yes. So in the, and of course, in addition to the shopping spree, there is the computer scenario. Apparently, there was a copy of a altered will writing them out on daddy's computer that the boys hire a computer professional to review, to maybe get rid of. In addition to that, in the review of the documentation that are on the computer, they come across a file with their mother's name on it, and Lyle orders the guy to delete this file because he was concerned that there was information in the file, Kitty's file, that would reveal what was happening, what was really happening prior to all this scenario, and he didn't want it shared at that point in time. Now, I do want to point out that the boys were actually told a year prior by the executor of the state that either they'd been cut out or they had... So we're hearing two different versions. I heard that they were cut out. You said that they were reduced, the amount that they were reduced. And I think Kitty was rewriting, Correct. rewriting hers. So Kitty's brother said that um, he went and saw her 
And part of that interaction that they had was her telling him that, you know, she was revising the will and she was writing him out. And she said specifically, they're getting none of my money. And he said, well, Lyle's here. He's going to hear you say that. And she's like, they know. They are, they're aware. Well, I think they use that as a threat. And mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's shocking in this is that when they killed their parents, they were 19 and 21 years old. So you still have a lot of life before you're going to get this inheritance anyway. Your parents still have a lot of life before you're going to get this inheritance. But for them, it was very concerning that they were going to get cut out. It's like anything could be fixable. I mean, you guys are so young. Your parents are still fairly young. But it was such a big deal for them. And the dad was obviously using the money as a threat because status and symbol and reputation was all that mattered in this family. Which is that financial abuse? You know, there's some level of like they are dependent on him and he's, you know, orchestrating the will. It's kind of a weird situation. Imagine what that would create in you. Well, I honestly think to some degree the fact that Jose created this scenario where they're all dependent on him they will jump when he says jump they will do what he says sets the tone for this unfortunate state of mind for all of them now you had mentioned previously this is the age when they commit this crime so let's talk about how yes they did do it but how it evolves to them being found out. As previously stated, as part of the stipulation for Eric's probation, he was court-ordered to go to therapy. Eric was seeing Dr. Jerome Ozeal, and he had such a guilty conscience about the scenario, he started confiding a little bit into more and more into Dr. Ozeal's appointments and somehow it worked out to where the doctor began recording this the rece- the sessions the sessions I don't know if he had Eric's permission I don't know if he did it illegally so here he's now shared what has really transpired on the night of August 20th 1989 but here's the clincher and I have read two different versions of how these tapes that the doctor recorded became public. One was that Dr. Ozeal's mistress, a Judan Smith, overhears Eric confessing. Because I think even Eric brings in Lyle. And even Lyle starts d- sharing and confirming this the their part in the crime. And either she goes directly to the police with the information... Or Ozeal, who was abusive to her, assaulted her, and she takes the tapes to the police, and that's how the investigation shifts from what, to some degree, they were kind of thinking with the shotgun uh, blasts, because one of the things they didn't previously mention was their kneecaps were blown out, and the intent was to kind of make it look like maybe a mafia hit. Their father pissed someone off in the mafia, it shifts the police's focus from potentially being this third party out nowhere's land to bringing it literally back home to the boys. So, well, and I can kind of take over a little bit from there because this is where really the legal battle starts kicking off because everything's about those tapes. So, preemptively, before going into court, um, the battle I mean, months upon months of battle of just trying to get the case 
the tapes excluded I, from I evidence. actually think it went on for years, like two or three years. Yeah, and it, I mean, and it was a large portion of, I think, you know, even before we got to the testimonies, that showed a lot of intent around, you know, maybe their understanding of what the outcome was going to be in court had those tapes gone in there and what they had said and how contradictive it was the day that they were um, being interviewed by investigators and the things that they told them then. Correct, correct. So just to back up for a half a second, I believe that providers can uh, record. They should tell people that they're recording, but they can do so when they're doing their therapy sessions, especially for note purposes and record keeping. Um, but it does, I, the tapes, this whole controversy with the tapes is coming from a place of patient client confidentiality. And that's why this is such a conversation because a, the girlfriend shouldn't have known because of that confidentiality. We can't really, we can't really give the tapes out because of patient confidentiality. But there was the case of Tarasov versus the Regents of the University of California, which happened July 1st, 1976, when they talked about a failure to warn and what your duty is as a provider towards people that may or may not be in danger. So I'm sure that had some standing in the conversation about the tapes, because if he talks about a murder, does that then like cancel out patient client confidentiality so the what right. i heard that they based that off of was they threw that off saying that n- they don't have a reasonable assumption of confidentiality when they're making threats to the therapist the therapist because at that this. point is able to throw off their requirement for confidentiality and is able to seek what would be a remedy to their safety yeah it's and they throw that entire argument out it's the risk of harm to either someone outside of that room or uh, even the provider, but that's what Tarasov dealt with was that this crazy man was saying that he was going to kill this girl. Well, then he did go kill the girl and the psychiatrist didn't do anything about it or tell anybody. So they all got failure to warn and they all failed in their duty to some extent. Some of it got overturned, but it's kind of the same thing. So he then can, but we're talking about a that. crime that happened previously. Well, but if like thing one is saying he felt threatened then that violates or that negates that confidentiality piece. Because he now has knowledge of a crime that where people were killed. Right. And hence, if they're willing to kill mommy and daddy, they might be willing to kill. Well, at that point, they're, they're, the information at the very least is open to be um, brought into court via subpoena. And so that was a huge thing. So once we've, once we've decided what we're going to do with the tapes, then the actual trial starts. And like Vina said... But one of the things I want to mention, because of the tapes, how it all plays out is Lyle gets arrested first, and Eric, who's actually on a tennis tournament in Israel, he flies home and basically surrenders himself for the warrant. To the police, right? To the police. To the police. So, you know, that leads us into the first trial. So the context, like we talked about before, was, you know, this is the first... Not maybe the first televised trial that everybody is watching, 
But again, this is like Sam said earlier, or Thing 2 said earlier, um, there's a perception that this is very similar to O.J. Simpson. So all the American people are kind of checking into this trial, watching it from afar, and forming their own opinions as they're watching it. So s initial impressions to the people that are watching are these are cute boys. You know, these are, these are kids that couldn't possibly have committed this murder. They were wealthy. Um, Picture-perfect you know, Americans. Yeah, they had everything going for them. So why could they possibly have such a terrible life? And like Vina said earlier, you know, there was a part of it where... Where the bodies, um, because of the kneecapping and the particular state of the bodies, there was the initial investigation into whether or not it was organized crime, which was dismissed. But another part that we missed was there wasn't a very good investigation to begin with around the brothers. So going into this trial, they didn't have a lot of the initial evidence that they take at the site of these murders. So they were never tested for gunpowder residue. You know, there's just some basic things that just were not done. Well, their Correct. DNA is already there. Their fingerprints are already there because they live there. And, I mean, I think the they ransacked The guns were in the their car. But, I mean, a lot they weren't looked at as defendants Initial or criminals, right? They were suspects. looked at as victims. And right. then to mix that, their DNA is already there. So you have to find very concrete evidence because the normal concrete evidence, like in the Manson murders or even in the OJ murder with the glove, those are things that would not be there anyway, whereas their stuff is already going to be there. Yeah. And, and you know, better, better policing or just a better understanding of, you know, kind of dotting the T's and crossing the I's differently than we did there, they might have come across the murder weapons, like I said, that were located in the car on the property. Um, in the trunk of the cars. And well, doesn't that go back to what Vina was saying earlier when it was like, this doesn't happen here. So not only does this not happen here, these kids, of course, are not doing it. Correct. Well, no, right. There's a, there is a sense of prejudice of and biasness of the police well, no, they're rich. They have the American life. They wouldn't be killing their own parents. That's right. not. We see these kinds of crimes in you know lower socioeconomical uh, neighborhoods. Not right. this neighborhood. Well, and these boys can lawyer up. So that's what happens. So these boys can lawyer up, and that's what happens. They literally attain lawyers pretty quickly. But one of the interesting stories, and I know we're going to talk about oddities later, but one of the interesting stories that I heard was they sat down with a family friend. They asked her to come over to the house the day after the murders. They jump in the car, and they're like, we need your husband to be our lawyer. Our parents just died. And she said it was one of the most strange experiences ever because their parents just died, and the only thing that they can think about is lawyering up and asking that question with no emotion. So we're walking into court with some weird situations that are happening, the spending the money, um, the lawyering up immediately, the, the potential lying to the cops, the script. And we have all this context where everybody's, you know, first impressions are like, these are, they can't be them. It can't be them. So initial witnesses are called, which are typically law enforcement uh, officials that can talk about the investigation and set up the crime scene like Vina did earlier. And most people felt like this case was going to be pretty quick. Even the Americans that are at home, they're like, okay, this is pretty cut and dry, right? These kids did it. It's pretty, you know, even though they said they were like pretty boys, once you started hearing the scene, you start, you know, slowly starting shifting to the prosecution side. Then, you know, I, I like to bring up um, Terry Moran. So Terry Moran was the ABC um, reporter that was in the courtroom covering the entire trial. And he said it was insane because the vibe in the courtroom prior to, you know, the pivotal moment was that, you know, this is going to be a pretty quick case. Prosecution is going to wrap it up. But yeah. all of a sudden the game changes 
when the boys take the stand to give their own testimonies. Well, yeah, because, I mean, leading up to it, it's here's these gruesome murders. These are spoiled rich kids. They look like they're entitled, and they killed mommy and daddy because mommy and daddy threatened to take their money. And as soon as they had said money, they went out and lived their best lives. Right. And again, we have the script that (laughs) says how they did it. So. So everything changes, though. You know, so the very first person that takes a stand is Eric, which is the youngest brother. And when he took the stand, you know, there's some basic questions back and forth about what their life looked like. And some of those financial abuse parts come out. Some parts about, you know, the dad trying to control his life, um, deciding where he's going to go to college. Um, But really, the moment changes when he starts talking about the sexual abuse that he experienced at the hands of his father. And so when Eric starts talking about that, he talks about the events that lead up to the murders and the point in which he decides to kill his father to kind of stop the abuse that he's experiencing. He mentions, too, that the night of the murders, um, his father was going to basically molest him again. And he, at this point, is 18 years old, about to go to college. And his dad tells him that he's not allowed to go to college. Um, or he is, but he has to do 50-50 at college and 50-50 at home. There's also a very, you know, kind of graphic description of, you know, the different types of sex that the dad made him perform. Um, We'll hear very similar things to Lyle. But as you can tell, just a real turning point in the courtroom story for these people that were clearly the perpetrators of a gruesome murder now are starting to look a little bit more like victims of a terrible, terrible family situation. So in one of the things I watched was the district attorney at the time that was doing the prosecution says it was going her way until the boys took the stand. And the second the boys take the stand, she thought, especially when they started talking about what was really happening in that house, the horrors that they were subjected to by not just Jose Mendez, but Kitty as well. She thought for sure she was going to lose this case. So, well, I'm sorry, Vina. I mean, when you think about it, we are now have, we already knew that there was financial abuse, emotional abuse, mental abuse, possibly physical. Like, could you see him backhanding these kids? Probably. Sure. But now you have the sexual abuse, and that's like the topper on the bombshell cake, right? And as from a legal standpoint, you never put a defendant on the stand ever because you don't want them to get crossed, right? So for them to put them on the stand, they knew that something big was coming. So, and you don't have to necessarily turn that over in discovery. They're allowed to say whatever they want to say. So, I mean, it was literally like a huge bombshell to try to give a curveball to the prosecution which you normally would not do unless you know you have that in your back pocket. And, and, you know, the prosecution said to some extent, she was like, if I had to mount a defense to the situation that was occurring, she said that the best defense to mount would be some level of abuse by the parents. Mm -hmm. And little do we know that that was the very first argument that was put on there. But dad's abuse didn't stop with the kids. So I know we haven't even talked about Lyle's situation. We've covered the years and years of abuse very briefly of Eric's. But dad cheated on mom all the time. Right, and we're talking a man who literally... Prostitutes. To me, ruled this... And I'm saying the word rule. With an iron fist. Exactly. Those are the exact words I was going to use. So let's talk about what was said. And, you know, part of... One of the things I do want to point out 
was the abuse was in various forms. So when we talk physically, he didn't just hurt the children. He hurt her. He hurt Kitty. And the kids saw that. The, they used the term battered wife. I would actually go one step further and say she was a beaten woman. I think she was beaten down. You don't lay your hands on a woman or a, anybody for any reason. But right. the level that he was probably doing it to all of them. Correct. And he was probably that type of abuser that knew not to hit them in the face. Yeah. He knew to hit them in the stomach. He right. knew where to hit them so they didn't bruise. And she's financially linked to him. Correct. Too. So, I mean, when she learns about this eight-year affair that he'd been having with some woman, I think the woman was even in New York, or the prostitutes, or the other women, and to some, uh, she knew. She knew what he was doing to their children. And so let's talk about that. So he... Based on what I read, it sounded like there was a progression, almost like he was grooming them, preparing them for his intentions down the road. Because the molestation starts with the massaging of the penises. I think he would make them massage his penis. Starting with Lyle. Right, because he was the eldest. At, at six or eight years old. Right. And I think he was massaging, when I mean massaging, mm -hmm. I don't really mean massaging. No. Penis, uh, Lyle's. And I think it escalated from there because the grooming is starting. He would anal rape them with toothbrushes. He would anal rape them with shaving utensils. Sodomize. And then it moved from anal penetration with objects to oral sex. He would have the children perform oral sex on him. And one of the things that Lyle had talked about in particularly, was when he would go swimming for his swimming lessons, because as we said earlier, Daddy got hit a scholarship for swimming. He forced swimming lessons onto Lyle, and it was during the course of some of the swimming lessons when Dad would come that he would molest Lyle, or it kind of sounded like that's kind of the beginning of the molestation for Lyle. Because he would take him to the like the gym room, the dressing room, right, and that's when the touching of the penises began, as well. Which is isolated too. I mean, to start grooming them isolated from the house in a place where they feel unsafe. Correct. That's a strategy. So I mean, he didn't like swimming anyways, and then every time Dad comes, something even more potential. Right. And then it shifted from full blown anal penetration it was actual sex so uh when you said earlier eric was told they're going to have sex they actually began referring to eric's and and jose's scenario as a sexual relationship which yeah. i mean that should be churning your stuff it's turning my stomach to say these words that this father his natural born father and natural born son are in a sexual relationship is is incomprehensible to me. Now, that's the dad. Wait, let me add on to that just real quick. So part, like I said, I briefly mentioned before that Eric talked about the four types of sex that they were having. And um, when he describes that, he says there's nice sex, there's rough sex, then there was um, knees sex and sex. Right. And if that doesn't show you kind of the progression that you were talking about, Right. I don't know what does. And rough sex, to me, and the way that it was used in the context of the trial made it sound like it was a punishment form of any time that they did something wrong, that's how dad would respond to them. And in addition to dad, 
doing these things, the boys have contended that their mother sexually abused them as well. And so what they both have described is that she would have them sleep with them in her bed, especially in the nights Jose was gone. And she would have the boys touch her everywhere. And they would do this, and I'm using everywhere in quotes, they would do this because it seemed to make her happy. Now, it's, I could be mistaken. I've maybe not, I've not read this or I didn't see this in a documentary, but as far as I'm aware, so far, none of the boys, neither of the boys have been asked, have you, did you have actual intercourse with your mom? So that has not, to my knowledge, come to light. Now, for Lyle, this type of molestation ends when he's about 14 years old. And when this happens, the mother becomes very angry with Lyle. She becomes, and bear in mind, one of the things that the, both of the boys reported was that she was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she used was, pills. She used Benzos pills. in particular and had several, um, went to the hospital several times right. for overdoses and had suicidal tendencies. Well, let's be clear. Most Stepford wives were using Finfin. They were on right. meth. Right. So, I mean, it's not uncommon for these housewives to, to sit cope. there and just be okay with whatever the husband does. And because they're financially dependent, they like their life well, and the glamour. They the other way. I mean, the man had prostitutes. I mean, right. well, and then molesting cope. her children and she looked the other way. Right. And then but she herself, drugs. right. Right, exactly. But she herself contributed not only, according to the boys, the sexual abuse, but she would physically assault them as well, okay? She would, this is one thing that I just kind of really stuck out, is she would, like, pull the boys' hair, pull them by the hair, drag them by the hair. She would beat Lyle. She would kick Lyle. She'd chase Lyle around the house with a knife, and when Lyle refused and was like starting to grow and be, you know, get interested in women and okay. start dating women, yeah, boundaries. Sh- correct. She started calling the women he was involved with whores, mm-hmm. bimbos, gold diggers. She accused Lyle of having AIDS. She would make him eat on paper plates in the den, away from the family, away from the family dinners. And, you know, this is part of, you know, one of the things that came to light. So the ironic thing about this is that we're seeing that not only do they abuse them to keep them compliant, but they shame them to be compliant. And so that was, that's a standard abuser control mechanism, right? I well, want to make Speaking a of shaming, you know, Lyle was losing his hair. Right. And they forced him to wear a toupee, and Eric didn't even know. Yeah. At the age of 19. Right. And I mean, I... I'm just going to share this. This is kind of personal. But when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, and I came from a loving, my mother was a loving woman. I I was so scared of what was next, what college was going to look like. I actually started having hair loss. Right. It's a stress mechanism. Correct. So to me, if you're so stressed out, you're losing your hair to the point where you need a toupee. That to me is a is a solid reflection of the anxieties and the situation you're in. But instead of looking at why he's losing his hair, dad, and it's mostly dad that actually makes him wear the toupee. Correct. Um, and and that's all about the family image. And again, well, we were talking about mom. 
Mom has the same thing. She's willing to do anything to preserve the family. So I don't know, in my personal opinion, we're not casting judgments here until after maybe the trial. But, um, you know, it, to me, I wonder how much mom actually sexually perpetrated and how much mom was more of a non-sheltering bystander, which both is wrong, but... well. She's just as manip- manipulative and um, abusive, maybe not sexually, but there's a certain level of the fact that the only reason that the brother finds out he's wearing a toupee is because they rip it off to shame him again. Yes. Right. And then they're shaming right. him right. by wearing the toupee because he's not good enough as he is. Yeah. And then the mom is taking out all of her anger and aggression towards the dad cheating on her and having an affair and feeling abandoned on the boys and telling them that they're dating whores and sluts when really she probably wants to say that to the dad. Right, she's re- she's redirecting the projection of her anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. Because they, too, abandoning her. And right. the boys are living out the same stuff that dad's doing. They're following in the fo- same footsteps. Maybe less Eric and more Lyle, but it's still occurring. So you can see how right. that's The behavior the of too. daddy is being displayed in them. And part of the physicalness of Jose, you know, going back to the swimming lessons, if Lyle pissed off his dad, his dad was actually known to grab Lyle by the hair and pull him by the hair out, out of, of the, the pool. pool. So, I mean, this poor guy is just getting literally yanked everywhere. No wonder his hair is falling out. Maybe it's a defense mechanism. Just get rid of it all, and then they can't <laughs> grab me by my hair. Exactly. But Now, and, and one of the things we, 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 I want to point out, it's very easy to say, you did these horrible things to me, and they're dead, and there's no uh, ability to rebut. However, we do know for the instance of Eric... Eric, at the age of six years old, actually had to be taken to the doctor, to the hospital, for an injury to the back of his throat due to the forced oral copulation he was forced to perform on his father. And so now we're starting to see medical reports. But in addition to that, both of the boys actually not only talked to family members, a cousin in particular for Lyle, and we'll get to that in a second, but more importantly, Eric wrote letters He wrote letters off and on as a kid. And when Lyle confessed to a cousin who was spending the night at the house, I, hey, can I sleep with you? I don't want to sleep by myself because this might happen. The cousin was so upset she confronted Kitty. And although Lyle may have learned later, that's when the assault stopped for Lyle. And that's when I think things focused on to Eric because Basically, from the age of eight, he's raped by daddy in some form or molested by daddy in some form until the night of August 1980. Until he's 18. Correct. It's important to say that. That's what I'm saying. They were in a sexual relationship. But I do, I do, okay, so I do want to go back. A a forced relationship. Let's clarify that. Can I just make a quick comment? I'm just saying, like, listening to what this sick fuck did to these kids makes me want to kill him. I want to let him swim with the fishes. So, I mean, it's really hard when you hear this stuff. I could only imagine being the jury sitting in this room. How do you not want to say, I get it. These kids, you know, they... If had they not gone on this spending spree and like did all this crazy stuff and really overacted and then did like the premeditation of buying the guns, how as a jury do you not sit there and become enraged and sick to your stomach and want to, you know, not I you would want them to well, be innocent. They show exactly their uncomfortableness by their decision. And just so we're clear, because this was not this has not been made acknowledged in this 
particular episode, the fake ID that was used was actually owned by Eric. He used this particular ID to be able to, and I think the name was like Glenn Darrow or something, to get into clubs, to get alcohol, I'm certain. So that's where the fake ID comes from. Gotcha. But just a side note. So we're bringing up the fact that, you know, how could a jury imagine, you know, they're sitting in here, they thought that this was going to be, you know, just a cut and dry murder case, and now they're hearing all these testimonies. I, I wanted to touch on just the fact that, you know, we never really got to Lyle's testimony, so I want to cover that, but secrets, 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 secrets. We heard Eric sit on the trial or on stand in the very first beginning of this saying that the only way that Lyle even knew that he was being sexually abused is because he broke down one day in his teens and told him. Mm -hmm. And this is prior to the murder. So this is when he's 18 years old. They're finally having the conversation. And Lyle is realizing for the first time that he is not the only person that has been molested by dad. And then in the same time that all of this is occurring, you have the secrets that happen from them telling a cousin, Lyle telling a cousin at a young age, and the cousin talking to Kitty and Kitty sweeping it under the rug. And then again, when Eric talks to his cousin, which is the testimony that we hear at the trial, and he flat out says that Eric told him specifically that dad was abusing him. But it really is Lyle's testimony in the court that everybody said really turned their head. And, you know, Eric's testimony can kind of go both ways. But when you really look at Lyle's testimony, he puts Eric in a place where his emotional reaction is very telling. So Lyle goes on stand and he talks about the sexual abuse. And in the story, he talks about, like Fina said, how he was abused by his dad using objects. One of those objects is a toothbrush. And on, in that same discussion, he talks and he's with such shame and, and openness about the fact that he used to take his brother out to the woods and would sexually perpetrate against Eric using a toothbrush. Right, and the learned behavior daddy just taught him. Correct, but looking at Eric's reaction, everybody said in the courtroom that you just can't fake that. It was like your worst fear was being unfolded in front of you but by someone else and you couldn't really control it. They said a vein popped out in his head that he was just like distraught, like the worst distraught you ever see. So they were like, you know, whether or not we believe which way they they made their decision on why to kill them, I mean, they were definitely abused, and they definitely did the murders. So the big question for the court, or the matter at hand, is not the murder, not the abuse, but instead, does that lessen their responsibility in this crime? Does it justify as a motivation to do so? Is it a heat of passion? Is it a self-defense? Because I do want to state that sodomy, especially forcible sodomy, carries its own, it is its own charge, completely separate, separate from molestation, rape, um, child molestation, and it carries a hefty and, er, and Lyle did on the stand as he was crying or you know, giving his testimony. He said the his attorney asked him, did you bleed? And I mean, here this grown adult has to revisit this childhood trauma that he thought was gone. You know, he's going to prison and his life is moving on. Yes, I bled. I want to cover, you know, those all-stars in the courtroom, too. So you just talked about the defense attorney, and um, that's Leslie Abramson. And she amounted, like, 
you want to talk about an all-star making something out of nothing she's the reason why and spoiler alert you know to give you the answer to the trial she's the reason why the jury ends up hung and she's the reason why you guys are feeling conflicted right now she mounts the defense for sexual abuse and she mounts the defense that says he can no longer take that abuse she's specifically the attorney for eric but she covers the overall defense for the entire team and one of the things that they said uh so prosecution on the other side is pam bonovich I probably said that terrible, so bear with me. But, um, you know, she kind of said, why are these boys so close? And she came to the conclusion that it was, they united kind of against one common enemy. But that doesn't, that leaves out why they would kill their mother. So the prosecution's big question is, yes, dad abused you, but why did you, like, destroy mom? And they put the pictures on for the jury to see it. She's unrecognizable. Well, because it wasn't as much. Mom didn't get. She's not shown in, in as bad of a light as dad, right? But, I mean, from what I've read in my research, they believe that the boys killed the mother because she just let it happen. Well, not only that. And one of the things we're not saying is this weekend, because I, as I described in the very beginning, the killings happened Sunday night. There was three days of absolute drenched drama in this house. This is the weekend Lyle learns about Eric's abuse. This is the weekend Lyle has to make a decision. Does he leave his brother who tells him this has been happening? Lyle's in complete shock. And he has to make the decision. Do I leave my brother knowing this is going to happen to him? And knowing what it feels like. And, and then on top of everything else, when he talks to the mother, the mother says, I've known all along. You don't think I didn't know? Of course I've known. And blames him for ruining the family. Correct. They do this. She does this to Lyle. So we're not talking a split decision because obviously the guns were shot or the guns were purchased two days prior. But we are talking a, a whole weekend of emotional abuse explosion and according to eric the dad said you go to your room i'll be there later for sex and eric was like i can't do this i'm going to kill myself eric was looking at he wanted to go to college as the escape he's 18 now he's ready to leave that house and leave that abuse he doesn't want to go back and dad had just told him at the start of this weekend as well prompting him to confide in lyle that he is no longer just going to go to college. He's not going to go to New Jersey, to Princeton, like he thought he was going to go. He's instead going to go 50-50 to Berkeley and spend 50% of his time at home with dad. That he's not going to be free. Right. So, and that's one of the things I, I definitely want people to understand. I mean, you have a family fight. Everyone kind of calms down, you know, about two, three hours down the road. You know, maybe you make your peace. Maybe you say your sorries. This did not happen in this house for this particular weekend. This was Lyle. You're you're the blame. You're ruining this family, and you know Lyle's got a situation where the brother is. You know he's going to if he leaves, he leaves the brother knowing full well what is happening, and I just think that to me. It's very clear how emotionally demented and the the mental state of this family was 
for dad just to announce, go to your room. I'm going to have sex with you later out loud. That's where they were. And, and that's not normal. That is not normal. So to circle back, this defense attorney, I mean, given high paid fancy attorney, maybe. But I mean, this woman used the cards that she was dealt. She yeah. did not shy away. She asked the hard hitting questions. She put it all out there. And someone called her like a, a four foot seven fireball. <laughs> well, from Eric's side to say that his dad was going to molest him. His actions are then more of a crime of passion in the heat of the moment type of situation. But Lyle very much takes the defense that not only did he have trauma and that he was abused, but that he was doing this to protect his brother so that it didn't continue to happen to him. So they did talk about the fact that they were united in a common enemy, but also they were united in trauma. So this brother gets to say, I'm trying to protect my baby brother from this happening to him. Because I know exactly what it feels like. And I mean, I don't have that level of trauma. Jason doesn't have that level of trauma. But thing one and thing two are very emotionally connected to each other. Like, I would do anything for my brother. And if I knew anybody was hurting him, when people were bullying him, I was like, I'm coming. I'm going to beat the shit out of this guy. Like, who is it? Show me the picture. And she's smaller than Jason, guys. Just so you're clear on that. And way scrappier. Because... (laughs) No one fucks with my baby brother. So, like, I do kind of resonate the fact that if this was truly happening, because I think that's the question, right? If this was truly happening, it's hard to not justify why these brothers wouldn't protect each other and unite against their person that's hurting them. You know, they have this really strong bond. Well, and I want to go all the way back to our starting story. Savina painted the picture of when, you know, these two suspects are walking into the house. There's a couple sitting watching TV. So we've painted the picture of what this weekend looks like. Now place the boys in there. And they give descriptions of what happens in the courtroom, like what they remember happens particularly. And Eric talks about, he walks into that room just guns a-blazing, just starts firing off shots. And she says, where? Where were you firing shots? In front of me. Who was in front of you? My parents. And Lyle talks about the fact that he remembers shooting dad point blank in the chest he falls back into the couch, and then he proceeds to shoot him until basically he's decapitated. Well, he's sure he's dead. Yes, and then they hear mom. And this is, you know, Vina brought it up earlier. So, you know, whether or not maybe mom was the direct perpetrator or whatever, mom at this point has been shot. They have to make a decision. They take a break. They go reload, and ultimately they do come back and finish off mom. Well, I I think when you guys mentioned the question – why did you kill your mom? And Lyle said this. I didn't know her. Yeah, there's a disconnect. Like, there's an emotional disconnect for sure. Right. So here we're talking three days of this emotional roller coaster. This guy's getting blamed for everything. He's learned his not only his brother getting molested, but mommy knew about it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, and by the way, it's your fault for ruining what's been happening while you've been gone. Well, this is you. Lyle's seat at this moment for this weekend. Right. But mind you, then the dichotomy of going to go sit back and just leisurely watch movies. Like all this horrible shit that they're doing. And then they can just go sit down and hang out and it's all fine. They'll do anything to preserve that image of that perfect family. But can you imagine as the children in this turmoil and this chaos and feeling so upright, you know, and then they're just hanging out like nothing happened. It's almost like sociopathic for sure. Or a serious uh, ability to detach that they probably learned when they were being molested. 
well, they had to detach. Even the parents have a detachment from what mm-hmm. they're doing as like a, because they can just sit there and pretend to be a normal, happy family. No, like they're exactly. not doing something They're chilling whether or not the ice cream bowl is involved, guys. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're sitting together on the couch is a reflection of how these two people are completely detached from what the other one is doing. Yeah. Or just nonchalant this terrible, gruesome world. Like you said, the dark places behind the doors of this house. Um, there's a, a clear acknowledgement and a dismissal of what's really happening there. So we've pretty much casted kind of our all sides of the motive, all sides of how it played out in court, and even gave you kind of our thoughts. But to wrap out court. Do you, yes. Okay, so to wrap out court, though. Wrap up. To wrap up court. To, um, what's really important is to remember some of these criminal elements. So they didn't necessarily find the argument about mom um, compelling. So it went kind of back and forth. You know, then there was the argument about whether or not um, sexual abuse was necessarily a self-defense motion against, you know, their actions of doing a murder. So let's let's come full circle and say the jury can't figure it out. So the jury comes back and they're told they they're like we can't figure it out we're we're literally struck in the middle there's some people that think that it's for and for or against and literally the judge says you guys got to get back in there and deliberate so they go back in and try to deliberate again and it comes back out a hung jury again so what happens we set up for a second trial and there's actually a third trial but I'm really gonna focus on the first two trials but the second trial. What's really important about that one is that it is the same judge. And the judge decides at that moment that it was improper and not helpful to due process to allow the public and the cameras back into the courtroom. So first step, not public anymore. Right. And and I think the one thing he does that does cause the conviction that comes out is he does not allow any testimony pertaining to the abuse the children, excuse me, the young men suffered as part of the testimony of their defense. Correct. And if you guys don't know, thing two is actually in law school right now. So I'm sure she can give us the intricacies Uh, of that. But what I think is so cool about the defense in particular is the fact that they ruled it off of not having grounds been um, having all that evidence being admitted into the first trial and not really meeting the legal burden to be entered in as evidence. But I imagine thing two has got some good insight. I mean, it <laughs> a little bit. So, I mean, what happened was is the first time, like I said, you don't have to put anything in discovery. So when they go to give their testimony, no one really knows what's coming. But in order to enter evidence, it has you have to lay a foundation. And because there's no rape kits, there's no proof of the assault, there's no pictures of the abuse, there's maybe one doctor visit that's 12 years old, because they don't have anything to substantiate that there was abuse other than them saying that it was abuse, I'm sure that they couldn't lay the foundation to bring it in. Yeah. Well, the- just to remind everybody, in the first uh, in the first trial, the cousins there were cousins, the cousins that Eric sent letters to testified, yes, he sent me a letter. And I think there was even copies of letters. And the cousin that Lyle Eric went to, to No, Eric confided into. Both of both them. Both of them mm-hmm. different cousins. Lyle the one that confronted Kitty, she testified. Yeah. So it's not just the boys saying they did this to us. Yeah. There's a trail of people saying they told us this happened. But the the compelling piece that I that the judge referenced specifically when he gave that was the fact that there was no reference to the sexual abuse in any of the tapes with the therapist. That the only thing that they talked about was the crime. 
I don't think they had enough to lay the foundation. And I think that's why it became inadmissible. So one thing that a defense attorney can do is they can say something. You know, the classic defense attorney move is... Spaghetti on the wall. Well, don't you feel like your dad is a molester? And they're like, objection. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind that. You know, but they rang the bell, right? So right, they put it they out there. they make those comments the and then they pull it back. That. Right, but they rang the bell. And that's exactly what it is. You can't unhear it. So essentially, I think that's kind of what they got away with in the first one is that they could put these testimonies in with little or no evidence to back them in the testimonies but then like in hindsight because there isn't anything to substantiate these claims the judge probably did not want to bring it in because there was no foundation to use that as evidence okay so, so second trial has none of the juicy parts of the first trial and it ends with life in parole well life, life without in parole yeah and i think the third one ends with i think that was probably an appeal okay so that's how they're currently now both in separate prisons. Oh, we got updates. Thing one and thing two got updates because this this has had like a revival. Well, so thing one and I had an argument all morning because to me, I say that you on a very basic level, you fall into one camp, right? You fall into the camp that either feels like these brothers were molested and abused and they had reason to kill the dad and mom and did they do it right? Did the spending spree make it seem less? Whatever. Sure. Or you believe that these brothers are just greedy Murders. and they brought in molestation and abuse as a way to justify the fact that they just wanted money. But if you do believe that Lyle was really trying to protect Eric because they both suffered this level of abuse at the hands of their dad, they did go to one prison together to be processed. So that's standard procedure. You go to a processing institution. They were interviewed, a very classic interview that you can still find today. I think today. together, right? Yes, correct. But they only saw each other for a short amount of time, and then they were both, so they went to prison on September 10th, 1996. They did have that interview, and that was the last time that the brothers saw each other. So then they saw each other on two separate buses going to two separate prisons, and they stayed at two separate prisons, unable to talk to each other at all. And while they did that, they actually, they couldn't talk to each other on the prison yard prior to being sent, and they went in separate vans to separate facilities. They weren't allowed to talk on the phone. However, they could write letters to each other, and they played chess games to each other, sending moves in the mail. So that was kind of interesting. Well, and I thought it was super sad because if you watch the interview at the very end, she kind of talks about what's the consequences of their actions and what they think is going to happen next. And both of them kind of echoed the sympathy that you know, we have lost so much. We gave up so much. We, we We've killed, endured so much. Yeah, we killed our parents, you know, to get rid of their abuse. And because of that, and we weren't open to it to begin with, because of that, we weren't really able to, you know, live our lives. And now we're going to be separated even now. We're going to have nothing. And then they lose each other. And they did lose each other for 20 years. And now they are finally housed again together at the same institution. And they're actually, ironically, in uh, Donovan in San Diego. Okay. Which, it's like full circle. Here we go. Where they got the guns, (laughs) where they're going (laughs) to serve their time. Now, it's my understanding they're both married. They are both married. Um, Eric has been married for 20 years, and Lyle has been married for 14. Prison groupies. I think Lyle's been married twice. So I think they have Prison maybe both groupies. been married twice. But, you know, there's always those people that just want to be with the men, the notorious men behind bars. Right. 
But this is an extremely relevant case because as Thing One said, it's now popping back up. It's all over TikTok right now. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because, you know, I, I am part of the tech generation. So Thing Two is on the tail end of the tech generation. And literally, for me, I'm like, y'all be crazy. But as it comes back up, it's, it was really linked with a uh, TikTok video that had, I can't remember who was the singer, but it was all about being in love with bad boys from prison or whatever. And it literally shows Eric Mendez on there. And it's like, how cute is he? Yeah. So all these TikTokers are like, who's this cute boy that went, um, went to jail? And they start diving into it. And it's interesting, but all across the board, millennials are feeling like this was you know, misrepresentation that this was, but when you look at the, the public at the time, their position was completely different. It's interesting to see how this is being retried in the public. So one of the things I want to touch down is what you just said. The perception of the public has definitely shifted from the time that they went to trial to now. Well, cause mind you, these murders happened, me being 34 years old as of a couple days ago and them committing the murder, you know, right before my first birthday it's been 29 years, or, you know, 32 years, actually. So, I mean, it's insane now to see how different things are because we have the Me Too movement, and we have where we're taking victims so much more seriously. Like, in this day Male and age... victims. Well, right. Would they still have been convicted in our world? Probably so, not. This is exactly my point. Two things. One, there is a belief that with... The mentality today, the public mentality today, with the first trial, they probably would have been a, a lesser charge or have been found not guilty. Acquitted, yeah. The other... The OJ syndrome. The other, I do think this is a very valid bias. And this was something Lyle, because I, I mean, I listened to tons of things. I read tons of articles. Lyle said this, and I completely agree with him. He said, you know... I think there's a perception about boys being, you know, he was he was talking about the perception of him protecting his brother versus him if he if Eric had been a girl. The perception would have been very different had Eric been a girl and this gone to trial and it's a boy protecting his little sister versus a brother protecting his other brother. Well, I mean, brother. I think even taking that out not even in the protection aspect of the boys just being molested. We, for some reason, for generations, have felt that man, men cannot be raped, that men are always apparently consenting, and that, you know, male sexual abuse, male abuse in general, has been greatly... Glazed uh, over. Yeah. It has not really been touched. Right. You know, and one of the interesting things is, I'm just going to toss this out, Aerosmith wrote a song decades ago called Janie's Got a Gun. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to that song, he does. they don't say the guy was molesting her, but it's implied, and everybody knows that. And you know they got letters thanking them for bringing to light this topic that is glazed over even for girls. Right. We're talking the statistics when I was a preschool teacher, which was a, you know, a long time ago, but not too long ago, okay, yeah, because I'm still 39 plus. Um. <laughs> Was one in four girls, and I think the statistics was one in six boys. Well, and I want to add on to that, too. Look at the language that we use tonight um, in our ability to have this conversation. So terms like grooming doesn't feel like a weird term for us anymore because we understand that concept. So I didn't mention it earlier, but this whole entire family gives me Epstein vibes. 
the mom gives me Max or Maxwell. You know, it really kind of lines up a right. lot of these these multi generational, these grooming um, to be part of the biz. That that whole concept. Um, we're far more aware of it now because of, you know, the bold steps by law enforcement to bring those things to light instead of just find them away into the background or whatever. Well, was not only that, not, not only kudos to law enforcement, but the unfortunate crimes like these. We, we now know because guess what? Killings happen in Beverly Hills. They always have. Well, I think an, an important piece, too, is just that people like things that make them uncomfortable to disappear. So right. when pl- uh, priests were molesting, you know, their the children in the church, it was a whole situation because no one wanted to believe that their man of God was molesting children in the church. We had the Penn State abuse with one of the coaches, and they just wanted to fire the head coach and fire him and pretend like it didn't happen. And we see that quite often, and even more so with males because they don't feel that they can ever talk about abuse because that makes them weak. They can't cry because that makes them weak. They right. can't have emotions because it makes them weak. And, and yet we put men a stronger standard. Who tend to be the more authoritative and in power. And so, I mean, I think it was Sugar Ray Leonard himself, a prominent, famous box, boxer who recently came out and said, I was molested. In fact, Mumford and son, Marcus Mumford himself, has written a song, has released the song, saying, I can still taste you. And he's referring, obviously, to an abuse he suffered, I think, when he was a small child. And his mother didn't even know. So do we want to wrap up with our final thoughts? Uh, we do. I have. And I want the last final No, actually, I would like the last final shot because I want to give you the last taste of for me, was a pivotal moment in my research of this. So we'll start with you. I was just saying, am I even needed here? Should I go? <laughs> <laughs> well, someone has to be before the last spot. Right. So my final thought is that it's just, to me, it's funny that this is all coming back up. Not funny, funny, but, you know, that it's all coming back up because ABC had a 2020 special maybe a year ago on the Menendez brothers, and everyone's like, ha, ah, there's abuse. They should be retried. This is garbage because of the culture we're in. So I think we're coming in a great, we're moving forward, which I absolutely love, that we can talk about power dynamics and grooming and that men such as famous boxers and musicians and celebrities are knowing that even in their older years of life, it's important for them to come out and say, I, me too, I did this too. And that they can join part of that Me Too movement and be able to bring light to abuse even for males because it's been so hard and it's taking these people generations to be able to talk about it. I think that's amazing to see that our, countries moving forward and that people are really trying to open up not to help themselves or get justice for themselves, but to ensure that these types of things don't happen to generations to come. Okay. My final thoughts have to do with the fact that, you know, I think tonight we have brought light to the dark corner on this topic and um, we're not very political generally over here, but I definitely see that the more that we bring light to these dark corners, the more that we talk about them when we do shed light on them and identify what is really happening in those dark corners, the more that we remove those dark corners from actually occurring and being allowed to occur in the silo that they do occur. They get darker if you don't shed a light upon them. Well, breaking right. the stigma. Right. Now, I'm going to um, share... When I first started this, I was definitely in the camp of 
I, I heard about Eric getting on the table and throwing shoes at the shoe salesman because he wasn't getting the attention he wanted. I heard about the $64,000 Porsche and the script, and I'm like, these kids absolutely fucking did it with this, you know, entitlement mentality. But my pivotal moment was actually when I watched the video, and I want to leave this image with you about one of the things the boys kept saying, my, our father was very brutal, our father, father was very brutal. And again, I am of the opinion that you can say anything about a dead person and they aren't there to refute facts, they aren't there to dispute it or provide information to counter. Defend themselves. Correct. I watched an interview from a woman who said that she was friends with Kitty and she shared this story. And this story, I think, is was my turning point, and I kind of started seeing things in a different light. She explained that the Mendez family had a ferret. They always had ferrets. Yes. And she explained that one of the ferrets or the ferret died. It looked like it potentially had gotten attacked and killed by one of the dogs. In response to this, both Eric and Lyle finds the dog's head in the refrigerator as a result. It was a German Shepherd thing, too. You have those. I know, I know that. This is how brutal their father was. Right. No loyalty to anybody. All right, so that's our show for tonight. On to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Like, comment, share. Tell us if you guys think that they did it. Give us a shout-out. Tell us what side that you stand on. Make sure that you tell your friends to come listen to us. What stories do you want to hear next? What topics would you like us to cover? And roll that music, Vina. Or. Oh, no. <laughs> She'll point at you when yeah, it's I'll your turn. You, know. you pointed. <laughs> I thought you were going to add if you want to join Facebook. You did do good. She for the, pointed. Until you. <laughs> but like Jason said, if you have a theme or a topic or a family killing that you want thing one and thing two to go over, Send us requests at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. And so we can do exactly what Jason suggests. Shine the light on these dark corners. You know, get these topics out. We don't need them to be family secrets. They're not helping anybody except for corrections, the, st the Department of Corrections, okay? Or just hear our hot takes because we don't agree very often. No, no, they do not. In fact, it's been very interesting. But either way, so until next time. Please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why we hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Cue the music! The father, Jose, had moved from Cal or had immigrated from Colombia to the U.S. after the Cuban Revolution. No, he immigrated from Colombia or Cuba. Cuba. What did I say? Colombia. Oh, I meant so Cuba. Start from that. Start okay. it over. For really many. Back. Hey, shut up. <laughs> Eric Mendez. Eric Mendez. Eric Mendez. <laughs> Mendez. Eric Mendez. Is the shoe bothering you? No, I was. I had him on my foot. <laughs> Is the shoe bothering you? <laughs> You know, I do want to... <laughs> hold on, hold on. 
Okay, it's still recording. I just want to add something that I forgot to say because I wanted to mention that. And the perpetrators deliberately start over because Jason. Had I know a lot his of thing. There. Yeah, because I didn't put this in the crime scene. I want to add the gunshots that he kept. So that's it. Cue the music. <laughs> you didn't have. You didn't say anything about Facebook. We can't. Oh, I was just saying. Well, she always does Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Come see us. And then I always say. say, Cue the music. Yeah, and then I always say. There's a few other things. Hold on. (laughs) Like, comment, share. Tell us who you think did it. What side are you on? And I'll say, cue the (laughs) music. Yeah, Jesus, Jason. (laughs) You premature ejaculated all over that. (laughs) I just like to say. She looks at you. She looks like you, motherfucker. I'm like, Vina has so much more to say. I do this all the time. (laughs) I just always like to hit it with the cue the music. Okay. So final thoughts will be moved over. Mm -hmm. Okay.